Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. Join us this Sunday at one of our four campuses. Call times are at 9 and 11 a.m. at our Somerville and Remount campuses, 10 a.m. at our North Charleston campus, and 11 a.m. at our Monk's Corner campus. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Larry Burbacher. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit faithishere.org. Good to see you guys today. Great to come together with the family again this morning. Take your Bibles out and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We are in the book of Romans. We've been growing together, learning together, studying this incredible book. We're in a section called Life Inverted. What happens when God's grace comes down? Well, he turns everything upside down. Everything about our life changes. And now he's going to get into this transformation process that God wants to do in our hearts and our lives. And so we begin a kind of a change in the tenor as we look at uh, Romans 12 and verse 1 and 2. So let's stand together this morning for the reading of God's Word. We're going to talk about two dimensions. You saw the roller coaster going upside down and backwards and, and flips and all that kind of stuff. But we're going to talk about two dimensions this morning. We're going to talk about the vertical grace that comes from God, right? God's grace to us. But it should always spill out to horizontal grace. It affects everything we do, everything we are, our relationships with, all, with one another in the body of Christ, all are because of God's incredible grace to us. Because God's loved us, we ought to love one another. Because God's forgiven us, we ought to forgive one another. Because God extended mercy to us, we ought to extend mercy to one another. And so everything that happens vertically should spread out horizontally. And I want to talk about that horizontal grace today. Look at, we'll just read verses 1 and 2. Keep your Bibles open there as we go through the message today. We'll be working through the entire chapter as we study together. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, because of God's vertical grace, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to attest and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How many want to do God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. All right, pay attention this morning. Father, we love you so much. You are so good, so good to us. Thank you that you loved us while we were unlovely. Thank you for your redemption, your grace, your forgiveness. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, may your word penetrate our hearts today that we learn how to present ourselves back unto you as living sacrifices. And we love you and we give you praise and glory in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Turn to someone, say it may be hot outside, but it's cool in here today. And then you may be seated. Romans chapters 1 through 11 are all about God's grace to us. It's about his vertical grace to us. And how that we are saved by faith, by grace through faith alone. That's the only thing that can save anybody. It's by the grace of God and putting our faith and trust in him. So he starts Romans 12, 1. He says, therefore, I urge you, I urge you that we present our bodies back to him as a living sacrifice. Now he begins to turn the page. Now that God has been so good to us, he's forgiven us, he's given us life, he's taken every sin away, we have a relationship with him. Now he says it should affect everything about how we live this life on the earth. And he says, so therefore I give myself back to you as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. What do we do with that grace God's given us? Do we take it and hoard it? Do we keep it all for ourselves and say, God, you've been good to me and thank you, I'm going to make it to heaven. Isn't that awesome? But it's got to be about more than that. Are you a miser of the living water that God has to give you? Or are you a channel of blessing that God can flow through you to other people? The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace the Lord pours into our life is intended for everybody. 
And once it fills a vessel, then it should overflow and spread out and touch others who are around us. Everybody who comes in contact with us ought to somehow experience the grace of God through our lives. That's why he leaves us in the earth. That's why when he saves you, he doesn't take you out of the earth right away and take you up to heaven to be with him. He leaves us here so we can spread that grace of God out to everybody we see. But we can't do this on our own. And he starts out by chapter 12 and verse 1. Something's got to change. Our life has got to change. We've got to change. We've got to be transformed. Uh, we've got to be changed. We've got to be renewed with the renewal of our mind. All that's got to take place. So how does it happen? First of all, there's got to be a compelling commitment. We've got to make a commitment. Now, the word therefore, look back at Romans 5. Look, if you would, at verse number 1. Therefore, you'll see this three times he kicks off chapters in Romans. He uses the word therefore. He's, he's building this theology. He's building this argument up. And so in Romans 5 and 1, he says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we now have peace with God. Isn't that incredible? Because of God's grace, I have peace with him. Then jump to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the second therefore. Because of all that God's done, I stand clean, free in the Lord Jesus Christ. No condemnation, no guilt, no shame because his blood's come in. And then we see the therefore. In Romans 12 and 1, therefore, because of God's mercies, we're to extend grace to other people. And he's going to take us through that as we go throughout this chapter. So it requires two things in order that we might change. First of all, there's got to be a consecration of my body. Verse 1, therefore, present your bodies a living sacrifice. He goes on to say, which is your spiritual act of worship. So when I give my life back to God, that is my worship unto God. Now, when you study the word of God, worship has always been accompanied by a sacrifice. When they would go into the temple to worship God, they would always bring a sacrifice. That would make a way in to worship the Lord. And so they present that, that animal sacrifice, that blood sacrifice. Worship was accompanied by sacrifice. They went together. They, they worked together. But the form of sacrifice has changed from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, it, they offered a dead sacrifice, and they made a sacrifice. In the New Covenant, we offer up a living sacrifice, and we're to be that sacrifice. You see the difference? Living sacrifices. I found a quotation. Listen to this quotation. I think it's great. The problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. The problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. And isn't that what we tend to do? We want to get back off the altar. We want to take back control of our life. We want to begin to call the shots again. We want to do things our way, and we keep crawling off the altar. So he says, therefore, offer up your bodies a living sacrifice. The word offer there, and it says present your bodies a living sacrifice in the King James Version. If Look, if you would, at, at Romans 6. You kind of get an idea of what he's talking about when he uses this word offer or present. He uses it three times right here in these verses. Look at Romans 6 and verse 12. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Here he's talking about your body again. Do not offer... Or present the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer, there's the word again, yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer, third time, the parts of your body to him as instruments for righteousness. So it's talking about giving ourselves back to God, not as instruments of sin, but as instruments of righteousness to be used by him. Look at verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So here he kind of says the same thing again in a little bit different way. He just simply says, offer up your body as a living sacrifice. Now what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament times, they would come and bring their gifts 
into the tabernacle or into the temple, whatever the case may be, and they would bring their, their gold, they would bring silver, they would bring building supplies, They would bring food in, they would bring their tithes and their offerings in to take care of the priest and to meet the needs of of those who were poor in Israel at that time. They would make their donations and they would literally offer that up to God for a specific purpose and a specific use. They would take something, they would offer it to God, they would present it to God and had a very specific use and a very specific purpose. And in most cases, it was to construct the temple or take care of the temple area. However, as you study the word of God, anything that was offered up to God had to be the very best. In fact, in Malachi, he says, what are you doing bringing your lame and your blind sheep in here and bringing the worst sacrifices you got? He says, God deserves your very best. That's a principle in God's word. We bring our best to be consecrated unto him, and so we offer it up to God. Okay? Now here, he says, offer up your bodies. What is the very best we have to give? Well, first of all, he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? It means every day I deliberately give my life over to the Lord. Lord, I'm yours. I'm living for you. I'm following you. I'm serving you. You wake up in the morning. You are that living sacrifice. You give that back to God. That is your very best. He says, offer yourselves a living sacrifice holy. The word holy means undefiled. You dedicate your whole life, your whole being, back to God for his use and for his purposes. And then it says, holy and acceptable unto God. In other words, that means it's a well-pleasing sacrifice. The sacrifice of your life, holy, set apart for God, for his work and for his service, it becomes acceptable in God's sight. Holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable act of worship. Now, I want to make a fine point here, and I want you to get this. The believer, God's not asking the believer to dedicate his gifts to God, to dedicate his money to God, to get, dedicate his time to God, or his talents to God, or his creativity to God, or his ideas to God. We give ourselves to God. I give all of myself to God, then that affects where I go and what I feed my mind with and how I spend my money and how I spend my time. You don't give your time to God. You don't give your money to God. You give yourself to God. And then everything else falls in place. You see the difference? If we can just give our money to God, I can come in and put some money in the offering and I'm covered for the week. That's not what God wants. That's not what Paul's talking about. Offer up yourselves, your lives, your whole being, who you are. You give that back to God and then God takes care of all the rest. So the first change that has to to take place is that consecration of our bodies. We offer that back to God. Then in verse 2, he talks about the second change that needs to take place, and that's the transformation of our minds. Our minds have got to be transformed because when you come out of this world, your minds are messed up. This world will mess up your mind. They're not right. Jesus is not satisfied with mere external obedience or going through the motions, or you can become like a Pharisee who can do all the right things, but your heart's far away from God. And so our minds, our hearts, we've got to be changed from the inside out. And so therefore, my mind, my heart, my inner being, my way of thinking has to be transformed by the grace of God. He calls for his followers first to have clean hearts, and then out of that we will have clean hands or clean actions. That's because both sin and righteousness all start right here up in the mind. So our mind has to be renewed. Now, he uses the word transformed. The word there, transformed, is the word from the word metamorpho. 
Now, for you guys that know any, uh, been in school and been in science class, you know that word metamorphu comes from the word metamorphosis. We get our word, our English word, metamorphosis here. And so what it describes is that, that caterpillar who goes in and cocoons himself inside a cocoon, and then after a period of time, he begins to bust out, and he comes out a beautiful butterfly. And that word for that change in science uh, is the word metamorphosis. It's the same word the Apostle Paul uses right here in the Scripture. It's also the same word you find in Matthew chapter 17. Now, if you go back, Matthew 17, we call that event the Mount of Transfiguration, the Mount of Metamorphosis, the Mount of Change. What happened? God goes up on the mountain, takes Peter, James, and John, and he is metamorphosis, and he changes, and he describes in verse number two, his face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as the light. Now here's what happens. This world system is ruled by evil, selfishness, greed, deceit, and violence. That's what we're products of. That's the environment we're in today. He says, be not conformed to this world. This world is violent. This world is sensual, this world is greedy, this world is selfish, it's filled with deceit. Be not conformed to this world's system, but be transformed, uh, metamorphosis, by the renewing of your mind. What is, what is the word saying here? God's system is totally opposite of the world's system. So when we come into the family of God, my mind has to be renewed has to be changed and it starts on the inside and he transforms me he changes me so that the light of Christ just like on the Mount of Transfiguration comes out and people see in my life the glory of God the world system is goodness and gentleness and meekness and truth there's no middle ground it's, it's as opposite as darkness and light, this world and Christ's kingdom. Unfortunately, we can't change ourselves. That's the, that's, the, that's the challenging part. What does he say? He says, be transformed. It's something the Spirit of God has got to do inside of you. So it says, be transformed transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is what we call a cooperative command. As we respond to his will, he says that you might prove what is good, acceptable, and perfect will of God is, is I respond to God's perfect, good, and acceptable will. As I submit to God's will, then the Lord does the transforming on the inside. And we work together that you may test and approve what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is. It is God's will. It's God's standards. It's God's desires. It's God's motives. It's God's values. It's God's practices, which gradually pull that caterpillar into this beautiful monarch butterfly. It's the will of God. It's submission to God's will that allows you to become transformed, to take you out of the cocoon of this world that has you all squeezed into its mold, and it pulls you out of that a glorious, beautiful monarch butterfly, an instrument for God's glory, for God's use. Now, how does he do that? How do we do that? How does all that happen? The Holy Spirit uses a lot of things to bring about your transformation. One thing he will use is the word of God. How can you know what God's good and perfect and acceptable will of God is? You get into the book. His will's right here. And as I study the word of God, as I understand what God's good and perfect and acceptable will of God is, he begins to change and renew my mind. He does the work on the inside as I study God's word and learn it and get into my spirit. Listen, church, if you won't read God's word, you'll never grow. You'll always be jumping off the altar. You'll be a lousy living sacrifice. How can your mind be renewed if you don't fill your mind with the things of God? He uses our experiences to transform us. 
He uses trials and hardships to transform us. That's the hard way. He uses fellowship with one another, edifying one another, building one another up. That's why church is so important. That's why your Christian family are so important. That's why our groups are so important. Because we help each other grow and through this contact and interaction with positive, exciting people who also love Jesus Christ, my mind is continually being renewed. I come to church. I hear the word of God. I sing and I worship the Lord. What is God doing? He is renewing my mind. Thus, he is transforming me by his Holy Spirit. All these things work to change us or renew us from the inside out. And gradually and, 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 and supernaturally, the mind begins to think like God thinks. Our desires are like what God desires. We love like God loves. We see things like God sees them. Because my mind is being renewed. Now the second change that's got to occur for us to move into this area of horizontal grace is there's got to be a mutual commitment to one another. That's where it begins to move it in even more. Look at verse number three and let's pick it up there. There's got to be a mutual commitment. Verse three. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think, there's that the, the mind thing again. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophecy, Let him use it to the proportion of his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Now, this this transformation of ourselves then begins to move out, and together we begin to transform or change our world. But it all starts with how we view ourselves. So he goes in verse number three, he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. If you don't have a right estimation of who you are, if you are puffed up with pride and cockiness, you'll never touch your world. You'll never be able to change your world, and you yourself will remain unchanged. We've got to guard against the subtle development of arrogance. Arrogant people love to tell you how educated they are, how much they've accomplished, how much they have acquired. And and if if you're around them for a long period of time, they've always got to have the top story, right? I mean, you're, you're sharing stories, you're telling stuff that's going on, but they've always got to have the top story because they know more than anybody else, they've traveled further than anybody else, they work harder than anybody else, they play better than anybody else, and, and worst of all, they're never, ever wrong. I'm not going to ask you if you know somebody like that. They may be sitting down the pew from you, and that might not be good. So he says, don't think too highly of yourself. But notice in that language, he's not saying don't think too little of yourselves. Think of yourself with sober, accurate judgment. We're not doormats in the world. We're not worms. There's not a worm theology that goes around saying, I'm no good, I'm no good, poor me, poor me, I'm a louse, I'm a, I'm a goof off, whatever. He's not saying that there. He says, think sober judgment. He just says, don't get too cocky and filled up with pride. Understand there needs to be a balance. You need to understand who you are in Christ Jesus. And I've got good news for you. You are God's special, unique treasure. He loves you. You're a child of God. He gave his life for you. He thinks you're incredible. But I've got to always remain humble before God and grateful for his salvation. 
We have been adopted into the family of God as children of God. Therefore, it's cause for celebration, not self-condemnation. In terms, though, of our value to God, listen to me. Here's, here's, Here's where the rub is. In terms of our value to God, in comparison with one another, we all stand on the same platform. You're no better than anybody else in this room. And you're no worse than anybody else in this room. Before Christ Jesus, we are all on the same level because every one of us have been saved by grace. So yes, you are God's unique chosen person. Yes, you are a royal priesthood. Yes, you are a child of God. Yes, you are a peculiar people. Yes, you are set apart for God's work and service. But you're also no better than anybody else. Because the bottom line is every one of us came into the kingdom of God the very same way through grace. Therefore, if I think I'm better than you, I'll never be able to love you and minister to you as Christ tells us. That horizontal grace thing will get all messed up. And so I can't move out and love others if I'm thinking too highly of myself, if it's all about me. Then Paul gives the analogy of the body. This is one of Paul's favorite analogies in the Word of God. You see it many times. He uses this illustration. And the idea is there are many parts. They're all different in the body. They they all perform different functions, but they are, are all very necessary. And so he talks about the body. And there's three things I want to point out very quickly. First of all, when they talk about the body, you think of unity. Unity. We are one body. We need each other in the family of God. We derive the same source of our strength from the very same head who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of the body and the head coordinates all the members of the body and so we've got to be united working together as one. And then he says there must be, there's diversity in the body. And how many know that God loves variety? Look around. There's a lot of variety in the house today. I think that's really awesome because we serve a God who is a God of variety. He's a marvelous creator. He is very creative in what he has done. Can you, can you imagine how God must have smiled when he's making all these animals and he gets down to the very end and he thinks, you know what, I got some leftover parts here. I've got a bunch of beaver tails. I think I'll make a duck-billed platypus. And just to really mess everybody up on the earth, all those nuts out there that believe in evolution, I'm going to put a special bill on the front of that duck-billed platypus, and that'll really mess them up. God is a very creative God, and he loves diversity, and that's what we see right here in the family of God, and it's really awesome. And then the body also speaks about mutuality. Mutual, mutual, mutuality. In other words, that means we need each other. I need you, you need me, we need each other in the body of Christ. And so he says when a person is injured or grieving, we all mourn with them. And when they're rejoicing, we all rejoice with them. And so there's interaction in the body of Christ. And where I cannot keep up, others can compensate and make up for my weaknesses with their strength. And then Paul gives very in seven very important ministry gifts. I don't have time to go into those this morning, but he lists them right there for you to look at. Serving, giving, uh, gift of prophecy, and there's, a, there's about seven ministry gifts he lists right there. Now I want you to jump down to the third thing, though, the test of commitment, and that starts with verse number nine. Here's what happens. When you give yourselves as a living sacrifice, that sacrifice is immediately going to be tested. It's going to be tested about how we relate to one another and how do you relate when someone treats you bad. I can love you when you're good to me when things are going well, but the real test comes when you start gossiping about me and I want to get even. Paul's going to address that head on through these last 12 verses. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. 
Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, now sometimes you're going to find it's impossible. If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now listen. The real test is our love for others, especially our enemies. The key test for the reality is, am I really a living sacrifice or not, is how is this horizontal relationship thing working out? The Jews and Gentiles in the early church, all these conflicts are going on. They're, they're, they're fussing about the law, whether they keep the law or not, and what's good and what's not. And so, and, and the Jews and Gentiles have this great breach of what's going to make up the church. Roman persecution under Nero is about to heat up. And they're going to be persecuted like never before. And so now he's going to give them the secret of how to overcome all this evil that is out there in the world. And he says the key thing that's going to overcome it is the word love. Everybody say love. Now, our word for love is a little bit shallow compared to the biblical word used here for love. The word here for love is the word agape. We've got one word for love. We say, I love pizza, and I love spaghetti, and I, and I love my doggy, and I love this and that. They had about four different Greek words for the one word love, and the most intense form of love was the word agape. And so that's the word he is using in this passage, and agape means selfless Selfless love, unconditional expression of God's grace. And compassion exemplified by the love of God for sinners. That's the word agape. And so here's what Jesus Christ does. He's hanging on a cross. They put nails in his hands, a crown of thorns on his head. And what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That, my friends, is agape love. That's love for those who are beating you who are talking about you, who are running you down, who are cheating you in business. That's the love he's talking about. So he starts out in verse number nine. Look at that first phrase. Love must be sincere. The word sincere means not hypocritical. Just sincere, two syllables, you put it together, and it has the idea of being not hypocritical. Now, in the Greek world, the actors would put on mask. And the mask were told to portray their emotions, and they would wear the mask of joy or sadness or whatever emotion they want to portray. They would put that mask on as a part of their acting, a part of their play. So a hypocrite was also known as a Greek actor, and he would wear his mask. Now follow me here. There are two masks that hide our love, that mess up our love. The first is the mask of pride. Pride. Pride always comes in and poisons love. You may possess incredible talents. You may have a wonderful intellect. But if you fail to love because I'm too proud, I'm too good, I can't step down to your level, and he addresses that in these verses, don't be conceited. Don't be tr- proud. Reach down to those who have low position. They have a lower position than you. But if you are too proud to do that, it will always be a mask that keeps you from having the love of Christ. It messes up our relationships. Love is not sincere. Love must be sincere. Take the pride off. As long as you are filled with pride, you can't love others because love becomes all about you. And so if somebody hurts me, you've wounded me. You've hurt me. You don't know what you did to me. You don't know how mean you were to me. Me, 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 me. That's all rooted in pride. So you can't forgive. You can't release them. You can't let it go. Why? Because they have offended you. 
What is that reaction based in? That reaction is based in pride. When I'm humble, then I'm free to forgive and release them and let it go. So what we do is in our pride, we come to church and we put on our mask and we put on a good show and we pretend to care about somebody else. We keep all our relationships very superficial because I can't let anybody get really close to me because I don't want them to see how bad I really am. And so my pride keeps them all at arm's length and it keeps me from experiencing sincere love. The second thing, the second mask that keeps us from being sincere, love being sincere, is the mask of fear. Fear is giving, fear giving genuine love because it comes at the risk of loss or rejection. So I'm afraid of giving out real, genuine love and forgiveness and mercy and grace. Why? Because they might reject me. So out of my hurt, because I've been hurt so many times, I'm afraid to be vulnerable. I'm afraid to love again. I'm afraid to express those emotions because it may not come back to me in the same way. And so people who have been hurt or wounded or suffered loss or rejection along the way, what happens is they, they shut down, they don't love, they don't open up because they are filled with fear. That's why the Bible says perfect love cast out fear. So he says love here must be sincere. And what happens is when you operate out of fear, you settle for pleasing people no matter what the cost to their personal integrity. In other words, you, you, you don't want to offend anybody, and so there's not any tough love involved. There's no accountability involved. Why? Because I'm afraid. And so everything remains very, very surface, and so you become too timid to confront somebody. Why? Because I'm afraid of how they might react. You become too fragile to seek their good. Love motivated by pride or fear is self-centered at its root. Real love seeks the highest good of somebody else. Sometimes love's got to be tough. And the most loving thing to do is say, hey, buddy, what are you doing, man? You're messing up your life. Don't go down that path. It'll destroy you. It'll ruin your marriage. It'll ruin your body. It'll ruin your life. Get out of that stuff, man. And sometimes the most loving thing you can do is confront somebody in love. You can speak the truth in love, but fear keeps us from doing that. And so if I say something, they might get mad at me. They might be offended, and we say nothing, and they go headlong on a path straight to hell. And so love that is sincere reaches out and says, listen, buddy, let me help you here. You're messing up, and I can work with you and help you through that. Love is always marked, though, by compassion and grace. Now, Paul writes these. He wrote Romans. We know that. If anybody wrote these words, don't return, return good for evil, not evil for evil, overcome evil with good, Paul's a guy who, who traversed the Roman Empire. He goes back from Jerusalem to Rome and all around the empire. He has been beaten on multiple occasions. He has been stoned. He has been shipwrecked. He's been left for dead. He's been talked about. Everything else you can imagine. If anybody writes about this stuff and, and could mean it, he says, never pay back evil for evil. For the Apostle Paul, it comes at a great personal sacrifice. He's been there. And yet he still writes these words down for us. Now, I want you to focus on the phrase, return no one evil for evil. Why? I want to give you two reasons very quickly, and then we're going to wrap it up. First of all, evil stirs up more evil. So if someone says something about you, and you got to retaliate, bam, it just keeps that cycle going, that crazy cycle going. In your marriage, you're in the marriage and one gets mad at the other and you say, well, I'll show them. You keep the crazy cycle going. Nobody stops the nuttiness. And you get further and further apart in your relationship. He says, don't return evil for evil, 
we must refuse to obey our every natural reaction. Naturally, we want to get even because they have offended me. Follow me here. Every cell in our body is programmed for survival. So what happens is when, someone comes, uh, when something comes close to my face, what do I do? I flinch, right? Somebody throws something at you, you your, your immediate reaction is survival. So you flinch, you pull back, your hands go up. When you trip and you fall, what happens? My hands go down to brace the fall, so I survive. So I get by that. When someone you're behind someone and they start backing up their car, what do you do? Honk, honk, I'm here, buddy. Don't run into my fender. Those are natural reactions. Those are natural instincts. But when someone causes us harm, the natural instinct is to seek justice by getting even. That's natural. You did bad to me, I'm going to do bad to you. You talked about me, I'm going to talk about you. You slap me, I'm going to slap you right back. Those are natural reactions. Paul calls us to respond supernaturally. To go beyond the natural. Because every fiber of my being wants to lash out and get revenge and get even. So what does Paul say supernaturally? Bless those who persecute you. That goes against every natural instinct. Bless and do not curse. Now, here's the reality today. Listen to me. The reality today is this. We're not going to be beaten, most likely. No one's hitting you in the face. You haven't been assaulted physically probably since you were in kindergarten. And, and, and so there, there's no real fights and brawls going on. So, so how, do we, how, how, how do people do evil with us? It's with their mouth. Right? They talk about us. They gossip. They put up a Facebook post, a Facebook page. They, 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 they gossip. They talk about us to everybody else. That's how we relay evil today. So Paul goes to the heart of the issue. He talks about our mouth, and he talks about two different things, blessing and cursing. Blessing and cursing. He says, watch your speech. In other words, he, the, the heart is the well. The tongue is the bucket that draws out of what is in there. Uh, Jesus hit on this. It's out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Paul says that. So if you've got malice and wickedness in your heart, the bucket goes down, their tongue, and draws that out, and that's what comes out. So he's dealing with what's going on in the inside. Curse means to bring harm on somebody or to wish harm. It's revenge with the tongue. The word for bless is interesting. The word for bless is from the word eulogio or something in the Greek language. It's where we get our English word from, eulogy. Now, where do you think of eulogies? At a funeral. What do we do? Someone gives a eulogy. They stand up and they say something good about that person who's lying there. Right? It's a eulogy. Paul says, eulogize people while they're alive. Don't wait till somebody's dead to say something good about them. We ought to be eulogizing one another every day. We ought to be saying good stuff about that person while they can hear us and while it's going to affect those around us. Eulogize them while they are alive. And so he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, that's supernatural. That goes against our natural instinct of self-preservation the second reason he says that is because god's the judge you see there's something wrong with our justice our justice is corrupt our justice becomes self-centered our justice is about me i have been offended and so he says don't repay evil for evil god will take care of all that stuff you stay out of it wow our desire for justice is fueled by pride by fear, by hatred, by selfishness. And so I'm unqualified to be their judge because my justice is corrupt. And so what do I do? Paul says, let it go. This is beyond your pay grade. This is not what you were designed to do. You're in a whole new realm here when you get in the judging business. So Paul says, let it go. You're not qualified to be the judge. Now look at verse 19. I want you to see something here. i got to hurry. 
Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave rooms for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, some of you guys read this verse wrong. You read it like this. Oh, God's wrath's a lot worse than mine. And so what happens is we say, sick him, God. I can't talk about him, but God, please wipe him out. Please get him out of my life. That's a misinterpretation of that verse. Now follow me here. God's wrath, God's judgment is always redemptive in this age of grace in which we live. Always. God is always about reaching lost people. Now after the age of grace, God's wrath will be his wrath. He says it's appointed a man once to die and after death, the judgment. But while in this earth, God's wrath, when he expresses that, has an idea with their redemption in the end. For example, when he pursues the sinner, when he cuts off their way of escape, when he confronts them with the consequences of his action, when he chastises him or punishes him or makes him miserable in the midst of his sin, why is he doing that? He's trying to pull him back to repentance. So God's wrath in this age of grace is always fueled by the long-range goal of bringing someone back to repentance. To redeem our enemies. Here's the problem. When I take revenge myself, I stand between God and his beloved creation. I mess it up. That's why he says, let God handle it. God's trying to bring them back. We're getting mad and pushing them further away. And the war gets bigger. And they're saying, if that's what a believer's like, I want no part of it. And God's wrath is redemptive. So he will allow situations and things to happen in your offender's life so it may humble them, it may bring them down, so that ultimately they'll cry out for God and say, God, I messed this life up, I need you bad. But when I jump in and I execute my own wrath, my own revenge, or I talk about somebody else, I get in the way of God's redemptive plan. And here's another just thrown in real quick. When we have been hurt, we need healing in our spirit. If you've been hurt and wounded along the way, you need healing. We think in our mind that if I get revenge, it will taste so sweet, and that will bring the healing I've been looking for. It is a hollow lie. It will not work. The only thing that brings healing is for you to forgive and release and let it go. And then, and only then, can healing come as I begin to forgive others. Now listen to me. He starts out, present your bodies a living sacrifice. This is the sacrifice right here when I love those who hurt me, when I overcome uh, evil with good. When I bless and I don't curse, this is, all, this is the sacrifice that God requires of every single child of God. This is where the grace comes down vertically and now spreads out horizontally. Therefore, because God's been good to you, love others, forgive others, turn the other cheek. The only way you're, we are sure that you've understood God's grace and God's mercy is when you begin to extend that to others. And until that happens, you don't have a full understanding of God's grace. Returning good for evil is not complicated. It's a very simple commandment. It's very straightforward. It is very, very clear. But it will probably be the most difficult command for you to ever carry out. Not complicated in theory. Very simple, very straightforward. The hardest thing you will ever be called to do on in your life. Now, in order for you to forgive somebody and release them like I'm talking about, you've got to go back to Romans 8, and I'm going to close with this verse, and this is my second and last closing, third closing. Go to Romans 8. I'm sorry. You've got to see this. To release somebody supernaturally, to get beyond my natural inclination to get revenge, to overcome evil with good, it's going to take supernatural help. Here's the help right here. Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
Now, there's got to be a deep, heartfelt, do I really believe this promise that God is for me? If I really believe that, that if God is for me, nobody out there can really hurt me, nobody out there can really harm me, if I really believe that, then I can release them and move on and trust God. If God is for us, who can be against us? And let me just finish that thought. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how he would not give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised alive is at the right hand of God is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or a hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as are written for your sake? We face death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors. How can I overcome evil with good? Why? Because God's on my side. Through Christ I am more than a conqueror through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor neither things present nor future nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else created will be able to separate from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now when you settle that issue once and for all, you've got to settle it ahead of time. You can't wait till those missiles are flying at you. We want to launch a missile right back. But I've settled this issue. God will take care of me. God will defend me. God will be there. That frees me then to love them in return. That frees me to bless them. No matter what they do, I bless you in the name of Jesus. God's grace is so good. He saved me. He can save you. I bless you in Jesus' name. I release you. I let it go. Thanks for listening to this weekly podcast. Check out faithishere.org for podcasts and videos of our previous messages.